We'll be reading the passage and have opportunities to look at various verses as we go along. So if you don't happen to have a copy of God's Word open, I'd encourage you to take uh, the pew Bible there that you've got in front of you, and you can turn right to page 180. We're, we're right there. On January the 1st, 2006, Chris and I were somewhere in the western part of the Caribbean Sea on a cruise celebrating our 10-year anniversary. also happened to be the night that Florida State was playing against Penn State in the Orange Bowl, and the super fan that I am wanted to watch the game. We were in the middle of nowhere, right? We're in the middle of the ocean, so certainly that'd be a great anniversary thing to do, right? It's to go watch the Florida State Seminoles play football. So my wife's a gracious woman. She's so wonderful. She said, let's go do it. You know, let's go watch the game. And we found out the cruise line was having, they were showing the game in one of their lounges. And so we went. Of course, we weren't the only people there. Um, there were a lot of other people that had kind of filtered in over the, the course of the game. And we weren't the only, um, it wasn't just Florida State fans either. There were a lot of Penn State fans that had come in to watch the game with us. Uh, the game wasn't a particularly good game. Uh, if you're a Florida State fan, this was in the middle of the lost decade. Things were trending downward. It was a miracle that Florida State was in that bowl game to begin with. But it was Bobby Bowden and Joe Paterno, sort of the two legends of college football, the coaching legends of college football. And so even though the game wasn't good, um, we were watching the game, and it just was entertaining, and we're watching the teams go back and forth, and it was close the whole game, nip and tuck. It ended up actually going to three overtimes. I remember that part, too, and that's where uh, Gary Sismacia missed the field goal in the third overtime, but the Penn State kicker got it, so they won the game. Anyway, it was a, it was a fun night. We were watching the, the football game. We were watching it with a lot of other people. And of course, with the Florida State fans, it's always fun, that camaraderie. You know, we got the chop and the war chant, so when things are going good, you know, we're chopping it up, and we're doing, oh, you know, we're doing all that, and it's, you know, the spirit's there. It's really good. But the Penn State fans were also there, and so they're going to be cheering for their team, right? Normal, natural. And so they would, they would do their cheer, which I think is probably the lamest cheer in all of sports. One side of the room would say, we are. And the other side of the room would respond, Penn State. We are Penn State. The whole night, constantly, over and over again. We are Penn State. I'm thinking, that's all you got? Like, that, that's it? We are Penn State. It's kind of annoying. This we are Penn State. We're chopping it up. We got the war chant. We are Penn State. And so as the game is progressing, I'm just like, I really hope we win this game. I mean, I would want to win it as a Florida State fan to begin with, but I don't want to be hearing we are Penn State for the rest of the night or even the rest of the cruise. And so the game is closed again. Nip and tuck goes to the third overtime. And, of course, Penn State pulls it out with the kick in the third overtime. And so it's just, we are Penn State. We are Penn State. Uh, I'm thinking, man, you guys got to come up with something else. This is just not going to work. But I will say this. At least they know who they are. They are Penn State. And I know who they are. They are Penn State. There is something profound in the simplicity of that identity marker. Those words capture the spirit and the tradition and the ethos of what it means to be a part of the Penn State community. In fact, the hashtag we are is the official hashtag for Penn State athletics 
And even if you look at the broader university stuff that they post, they will occasionally use that we are hashtag. And the idea there is that they are sort of beginning that, that, that sense of, of identity, right? We are, we're, 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 they're starting that chant that you're supposed to instinctively respond back, probably if you're just on your computer screen, right? Penn State. There's something about the sense of community, the sense of identity, the sense of tradition and spirit. By saying those words, a person from Penn State, a person that's part of that community is identifying themselves as part of that community. They're representing the values and the commitments of that community. Identity markers are powerful symbols of, of who we are, of what we belong to, of what we represent, of where our commitments lie, and of what we are trying to achieve. At this stage in our study of the book of Joshua, Israel has just crossed over the Jordan River. They're encamped a few miles away from Jericho on, in the land of Canaan on the west side of the river. Before they crank up the war machine, they're going to go do battle to take possession of the land that God is giving to them. Before they begin to prepare themselves for battle, before they crank up the war machine, God finds it important that they remember who they are. It is essential that they remember their identity. They are God's covenant people. Joshua chapter 5 records the final necessary preparations that Israel must make before they head into battle. But those preparations aren't for battle. Those preparations are for living as God's covenant people in this new land He is giving them. As we look at this passage, we want to be reminded of our own identity as God's new covenant people in Christ and how the identity markers that He has given to us reassure us in our faith and strengthen our resolve to live according to that identity in the world. Let's look at the chapter. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 15, and we'll circle back around and and work through it. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them, because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeah Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the day after, on the, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Through all the So though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nations, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give them, to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. 
While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, Why, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What this passage, I think, will remind us is that we are God's covenant people. And I think we see that truth expressed in four ways in this passage. First, in verse 1, we see that we are God's covenant people because God providentially cares for us. We are God's covenant people because God providentially cares for us. We read in verse 1, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to the west, And all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. We read there the Canaanites' fear. They were gripped with a paralyzing fear at the news of Israel's crossing over the Jordan into their land. Verse 1 says that their hearts melted the illustration i used a few weeks ago was that of a of an ice cube right a very just imagine pulling an ice cube out of the freezer and setting it on a hot sidewalk and how that in just a very short time that ice will just melt it will just dissipate away verse one also says there was no longer any spirit in them in the hebrew mindset it's almost as if the, the wind's been knocked out of them right you've ever had that experience before how, how scary it feels you just you can't function you can't move So here these two expressions reveal that the Canaanites had lost their will to resist the oncoming Israelites. They acknowledge that their defeat is sure. They're emotionally and spiritually lifeless. They are are curled up in the proverbial fetal position. They're resigned to their fate. In fact, Israel's victory is fait accompli. It's a matter that has already been accomplished even before a single attack, before a single shot has been fired, before a single marching of the troops. The Canaanites cannot stand before a people whose God is the Lord of all the earth, the one whose hand is mighty. And why are the Canaanites so afraid? Well, verse 1 tells us that they had heard what the Lord had done for his people. And what did they hear? Well, they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. In other words, God had done the impossible. He had supernaturally stopped the waters of the Jordan so that Israel could cross over on dry ground into their land. And so the Canaanites here are connecting the dots. The Lord of all of the earth, the Creator, has supernaturally done this miracle, has acted over creation itself. He has stopped the waters of the Jordan River by His sovereign power. And Israel has crossed over. Yahweh here is working for His people. He's not working for the Canaanites. He's working for Israel. He is graciously and providentially acting on their behalf. And so He must love His people. He is using His power to bring Israel into the land. And if He's going to do that for them, He's not going to stop right there. He's going to go all the way 
he is going to use his power supernaturally to give Israel the land in which they are presently living. And that means the Canaanites will be defeated. Verse 1 tells us that the writing is on the wall. The Canaanites' days are numbered. Well, God's powerful works for Israel signal to them his providential care. Again, going back further in the story, he had brought them out of Egypt. He had led them 40 years through the wilderness. He provided for their every need, even the basic fundamental needs of food and water. He had given them victory in battle. He had led them across the Jordan River. And why did he do all this? Because they were his covenant people. He had cast his love upon them. He had made many promises to them. He had willed that they live in this land so that they could live in covenant fellowship with him. He delighted in having them as a people. And so God did everything that was necessary to bring his people, his covenant people, into the land. My friends, we too are recipients of God's providential care. And it is through his providential care, through his extraordinary work, through the gospel, for our ultimate good, that we know that we are his new covenant people. Adam, once again, stole my thunder in the call to worship. Romans 8, although I'm glad he read the whole thing. I wasn't going to read the whole thing. It was too long. Thank you. Romans 8, that beautiful chapter that reminds us that God is for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then that chapter beautifully talks about the love of Christ, now we can never be separated from the love of Christ. All of these things that we face out in the world, all of the noise, all of the tribulations, all the persecutions, even the devil himself, even death itself, cannot separate us from God's love. So great is his love for us that he would care for us. The fact that God cares for us reveals that he loves us. He loves us extraordinarily. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to work His ultimate good in us. And why would God do that? Because He loves us. John writes in 1 John 4, 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the Canaanites could connect the dots, right? What God did, he did for his people. And what God has done, he has done for us. We are God's covenant people because we are the recipients of his providential care. Let me just take a moment here to say that if you're not a Christian, then you should be afraid like the Canaanites. Joshua chapter 5 verse 1 should be your life verse. Because if God is for his people, and you are not one of them, it means that God is against you. And I don't know what problems you may face in this world, financial struggles, relationship issues, whatever those issues are, whatever your problems are, there is no problem in this world that you will face that is greater than God being against you. It is the worst problem that you could ever face in this life or the next. If you are not a Christian, your heart should melt. 
And there should be no longer any spirit in you out of a pure fear of the Lord. But the good news for you that was not afforded to the Canaanites is that God sent his son into this world to provide a means of safety for you. He offers you the forgiveness of his sins. He turns away his wrath from you. He gives to you himself. He gives to you Christ. He gives to you eternal life. If you will repent of your sins and turn to him. And if you do that, he will welcome you into his kingdom. And you will become the recipient of his providential care like so many of, of, of us do and have because of what he has done for us. But you must repent of your sins and you must trust in Christ. And if you do, you too will become God's covenant people as we are. So we are God's covenant people because God providentially cares for us. Secondly, we are God's covenant people because we've been called to be his people. We are God's covenant people because we have been called to be his people. You see in verse 2 that God commanded Joshua to circumcise all of the Israelite males. And why does he do that? Well, if we go back to Genesis chapter 17, we see that God gave the command to circumcise Israelite males to Abraham when he was making his covenant with him. And again, I don't have time to read all of the, the, the verses. It's really verses 1 through 14. Let me pick up in the middle. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. This is God speaking to Abraham. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So in this passage, God confirms his covenant with Abraham, a covenant he had made over 400 years before this moment in the book of Joshua. And he gave to Abraham three promises. He promised that he would make Abraham a great nation. He would give him many descendants that would form a great nation. He promised them that he would give them a land, specifically the land of Canaan, the land where they are now about to, to attack and to, to settle. And he would also promise that he would bless them. That was all bound up in God's covenant with Abraham. And to sort of confirm that covenant or to, to give a sign of that covenant to Abraham, God told Abraham that he needed to be circumcised, and that all his male descendants and those that were even bought into slavery should be circumcised. Circumcision would be the reminder to every Israelite that God had chosen Abraham and had chosen his descendants to be his people. It was a sign that God had promised that he would give them this land, the land of Canaan, as their own land. It was a sign that God would bless his people, that he would call them to live in covenant relationship with himself in this promised land. So circumcision signified one's membership 
in the covenant community. You were a member of the nation of Israel by means of circumcision. That circumcision represented that those people, that that man in particular, but the people in general, had been called by God to be a part of his covenant people. God commanded Abraham not only to be be circumcised, but that every Israelite male on the eighth day after his birth be circumcised as a sign that they too were coming into, were being brought into the covenant community, that they were going to be one of God's people. And that practice would continue every time a new male is born. Every time a male is born, he would be circumcised. So this repeated act of circumcision after every time a male is born would be an enduring sign of God's covenant and of his promise to his people. So when the Israelites left Egypt, we read in verses 2 through 9, that when Israelites left Egypt at the Exodus, every male had already been circumcised. They had been practicing this every generation with the birth of every male in those 400 years that they were enslaved in Egypt. But during the 40 days of the wilderness, after they had come out of Egypt, the Israelites did not circumcise a single male child. Why did they not circumcise? Well, the Lord gives, the, Joshua gives us a, a hint at that here. The Lord gives us a hint of that, that the reason why they did not was because of the rebelliousness of that generation. Those Israelites who came out of Egypt were rebellious. God had told them a few, just a, a year or so after they had come out of Egypt to go and take the promised land, and they refused to do so because there were giants in the land. There were too many oppositions, too many threats. And because they failed to obey God, because they did not hear the voice of the Lord, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until every last one of them would die out. Their rebelliousness, this rebellious spirit, because they did not hear the voice of the Lord implies that they did not obey really many of God's commands in the wilderness. They did not practice circumcision out of the rebelliousness of their heart. So every Israelite who was 20 years or older, all the males born in the wilderness needed to be circumcised. And every last member of the generation coming out of Egypt over the age of 20 perished. So God commands Joshua here that all the male children who were born during the wilderness period needed to be circumcised. And that had to happen before they take the land for at least two reasons. First, because circumcision is the sign of the promise. It would seem unusual to have the promise fulfilled without having the sign of it, right? This was the great promise that God had made. He promised that Abraham's descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. So how could the Israelites take possession of the promised land without the seal of the covenant that made that promise possible circumcision must happen before conquest because it represented god's promise and god's commitment to give them that very land that they were about to take circumcision was a reminder of what god had said he would do for them and as they go into battle they walk in the promise of god circumcision is the reminder of that promise the second reason why the israelite males needed to be circumcised is because Circumcision is, for lack of a better illustration, their membership card. Circumcision is necessary to belong to the people of God. God had said to Abraham back in Genesis 17 that any circumcised male who is not circumcised, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised, shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. An uncircumcised man cannot take possession of the promised land because technically he's not a member of the covenant community. To be uncircumcised, God said, is to be cut off from God's promise. They are not permitted to inherit what God promised to give them. 
So circumcision is necessary for God's promise to be valid and to be realized for every male in the community. They will not win the battle and they will not possess the land because they are not God's people without circumcision. Circumcision represented then fundamentally that God had chosen them to be his people and that God had called them to be his people. Well, friends, we too have been chosen and called to be God's new covenant people. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Because he has predestined us and because he has chosen us and because he has called us, we know that we are his covenant people. If you haven't been called, you're not one of his people. But because we've been predestined, chosen and called to be his people, we know that we are his people. Our faith in him and our incorporation into his family is an indicator that he has chosen and called us to be his people. And like Israel, God has given the church a sign that marks us as his chosen and called people. And that sign is baptism. Baptism does not save us any more than circumcision saved Israel. But baptism, like circumcision, marks us as one of his people. That's how we display to ourselves and to the world that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul combines these two images together, circumcision and baptism, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, a spiritual circumcision, by putting off the body of the flesh. The flesh there is not the skin, but it's the flesh, the old nature, the old person, the sinful person that we are, that has been put off by the circumcision of Christ, what Christ has done for us. How he has cleansed us through his blood, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So when we are baptized, we are not only signifying that we are trusting Christ and that we are depending upon him alone for salvation, but we are also marking ourselves off as followers of Jesus. And I, maybe this is something that is underemphasized or maybe not appreciated much here by us American Christians, because it's, I mean, it's very common, right? We, we live in a quote-unquote Christian nation. We're in a nation where we can freely proclaim the gospel and, and people. We have uh, Christian homes where the, the lineage of Christ and the gospel is passed out generation to generation. So baptism is a great celebration. We do it publicly. We invite everybody that, that can come to come and witness it. But if you're in Iran, you can say you believe in Jesus all you want, but if you are baptized, they put a bounty on your head. Why? Because you are marking yourself off as a follower of Jesus. You are saying, I am one of his covenant people. I am a member of this covenant community. We signify that we belong to this new covenant people by baptism. And by that baptism, we're not just simply doing something cool. That's what my, one of my greatest fears is that we present baptism as something that's cool to do. I mean, it is cool in one sense, right? But it's not the thing to do. 
We are baptized as a way of saying, and that's one of the reasons why I ask when I baptize new, new believers, are you, are, you, are you trusting in Christ? Yes. Are you committing yourself to follow him? Do you understand that this is a commitment, a lifelong commitment to follow after Christ, to serve him and to worship him and to love him and to obey him? That's what it means to be one of God's covenant people. And so we are God's covenant people because we have been called to be his people. Third, we are God's covenant people because we have been redeemed to be his people. We are God's covenant people because we have been redeemed to be his people. We see in verses 10 to 12 that Israel celebrated the Passover. That was required by God's law to celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And it just so happened, coincidentally, for Israel to be in the land of Canaan on the 14th day of the first month. And so they celebrate Passover in accordance with God's command. What, is, what was the purpose of Passover to begin with? We remember that on the night before Israel's departure from Egypt, God had instructed the Israelites to slaughter a lamb and to take the blood from that lamb and to smear it across the doors of their home and then to eat a meal consisting of at least this roasted lamb and unleavened bread. And as they ate, God would send one final plague upon the land of Egypt. He would send an angel of death to kill the firstborn of everything that lived in that house, animal or human, throughout all the land of Egypt. That plague was to be a sign of God's judgment against Pharaoh, who had enslaved his people. But that lamb's blood, right, was the sign to the angel of death to pass over that home. The judgment would not be enacted in every home where the blood of the lamb was applied to the door. Of course, we know the story, the, the plague, the tenth plague there was the, was the thing that prompted Pharaoh to free Israel. And in bringing Israel out of Egypt, God redeemed them to be a people for himself. This was the people he was bringing out of Egypt to his land, to the land of Canaan, so that he might form a covenant with them and live in covenant relationship with them. This Passover meal that they are now celebrating commemorates that event, and it was to be observed every year. That yearly observance was to serve as a perpetual reminder of God's redemptive work. And so it's interesting to me that the final thing that Israel does before they begin the conquest of the land of Canaan is celebrate the Passover. In fact, the Exodus really begins with the Passover, and it ends. The wilderness wanderings begin with the Passover, and it ends with a celebration of Passover. Certainly they celebrate the Passover because the calendar requires it, but in God's providence, it is fitting that they celebrate the Passover before the battles begin. And that's because in the Passover, Israel is reminded of God's redemption. They are reminded of God's great work of salvation, they are reminded of the, the Lamb's blood that saved them, that, that caused them to be spared from the final judgment. They are reminded of God's great work in parting the Red Sea so they could cross through on dry ground. They are reminded of the covenant that He forged with them on Mount Sinai. They are reminded of His providential care for them in the wilderness, despite the frequency and the magnitude of their rebellion and their complaining. They are reminded of how God brought them over the Jordan River into the land in which they are about to dwell. In the Passover, Israel is reminded about God's promises and how he is fulfilling those promises completely. The reason why God had redeemed them, the reason why he had made a covenant with them, the reason why he had brought them to live in this land in the first place was so that he might have covenant fellowship with them forever. 
And we see that signified not only in the celebration of the Passover meal, but also what happens after the Passover. Do you notice verses 11 and 12? That on the day after the Passover, the manna, which was the, the source of food that God providentially supplied during those wilderness years to sustain them and to nourish them, he gave it to them without fail day after day, despite their rebellions and their complaining. But the manna that he had provided now ceased after the Passover. There's no longer any need for manna. God fulfilled his promise to bring them into the land where there would be great abundance. The land flowing with milk and honey. And notice that in verses 11 and 12, that Israel begins to enjoy the fruitfulness of that abundance. Look at verse 11. And, and the day after the Passover, on the very, that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer any manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The very day after Passover in the Jewish calendar, go back and read Leviticus chapter 23, the very day after Passover, the 15th day of the first month, begins a week-long festival known as the Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here, Israel, after the day after the Passover, celebrating the very first day of the Feast of First Fruits, they begin to partake of the first fruits of their inheritance. They begin to eat of the produce of the land, the land that God had promised to them. So what God had promised for Israel has now been fulfilled. This is the first step of this fulfillment. The tasting of the first fruit. They are tasting the first fruit of his promise. Well, like Israel, we too have been redeemed to be God's people. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Christ has redeemed us to be his covenant people. And just as baptism is a sign corresponding to circumcision to remind us of our calling as God's people, so also the Lord's Supper is a memorial of God's redemption in this new covenant that corresponds to Passover that reminded Israel of God's redemption in the Old Covenant. The Lord's Supper reminds us, as we see, we do this every Sunday, we're reminded of, of, of what the price was. The Lord, Lord's Supper reminds us of the price of redemption. That just as the, the blood of the Passover lamb spared the Israelites from God's judgment during the tenth plague, so also the blood of Christ, the true Passover lamb, spares us from his eternal judgment, which we rightly deserve for our sins. Christ's body was broken, and his blood was poured out to redeem us, to free us from our slavery, to, to break the powers of sin and death that enslaved us, and to reconcile us to God so that we might live in a new covenant relationship with him. 
The Lord's Supper also points us to our inheritance in Christ. Of course, we do not gather manna that's spread abroad for our sustenance. We are instead seated at the king's table to commune with him in joyful fellowship. What we experience now through the Lord's Supper almost corresponds to this day after the Passover. What we experience now through the Lord's Supper is just the first fruits of the abundance that awaits us in God's eternal kingdom. Do we think of the Lord's Supper in that way? Are we simply going through the motions of it? Or do we realize we're being invited to the table of the king and that what we eat is only a morsel? What we drink is only a taste of the abundance that awaits for us in Christ, our true inheritance. We know that we are God's covenant people because we have been redeemed by the death of Christ to be his people. And then finally, we are God's covenant people because we live in his victory. We are God's covenant people because we live in his victory. This chapter closes with a strange encounter. This is verses 13 to 15. It closes with a strange encounter between Joshua and the commander of the Lord's army. When Joshua notices him, he doesn't recognize him. He only recognizes the fact that this guy is probably arrayed in some kind of military getup and that his sword is drawn. And so he asks the question, you know, that we're getting ready to go to battle here. We got battling the, the Canaanites or we're, our, you know, we're going to battle against them. Are you for us? Are you on our side or are you on their side? I got to know if you're with us, I don't want to hurt you. But if you're our enemy, then... You know, something may have to change here. It's interesting here that this mysterious man responds that he's not for either side. He says he's the commander of the army of the Lord, which is interesting because we would think that Israel is the Lord's army. They're getting ready to go do battle on the Lord's behalf. And Joshua, everything that we've read up to this point would lead us to believe that Joshua is the commander of God's people. They're about to go to war. And yet Joshua doesn't doesn't you know, freak out about this, right? He doesn't go into a bunch of questioning. He simply recognizes this man as something different from who he is. The man responds that he's not for either side, but he is the commander of the army of the Lord. And that phrase, the army of the Lord, is used many times in the Old Testament in contexts that refer to an angelic army. So the commander of the Lord's army is the head of a, of a heavenly army, an army of the Lord's special forces, if you will. In the Old Testament, God often dispatches his heavenly army to execute his righteous judgment. And of course, that, as we'll see next week, that purpose is what's going to be unleashed here in the war against the Canaanites. But there's something else about this figure. We notice in verse 15 that he echoes the words that Yahweh himself spoke to Moses at the burning bush. The commander of the Lord's army commands Joshua to take off his sandals because the place where he is standing is holy. And the fact that those very words were words that Yahweh once spoke, and the fact that Joshua is, placed, is standing in a place that this man says is holy indicates that the commander of the Lord's army is no mere individual and is no mere angel. Whoever this figure is, he represents God to the fullest degree. And he receives from Joshua what the covenant specifies only God should receive, and that is worship. Joshua worships him. In other places where an angel appears and someone attempts to worship, the angel says, no, stop, get up, you don't worship me. But this commander of the Lord's army receives Joshua's worship. 
What we have here in this mysterious figure, the commander of the Lord's army, is what we call, theologians call, a theophany. It just simply means an appearance or a manifestation of God in some kind of a physical form. God here is making himself known to Joshua in a, a physical form or a physical appearance. In fact, many theologians refer to this as a specific kind of theophany called a Christophany or an appearance of Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, an appearance of Christ before he enters the world as a baby several, many years later. We associate with Christmas. Now, why would God appear in this way to Joshua at this moment in the narrative? Well, it's another reminder that the Lord fights for his people. God had led his people into the land of Canaan for this purpose, right? To fight against the Canaanites and take possession of their land. So this figure, this military appearance of the Lord indicates once again that the Lord is the one who goes before them. The Lord is the one who fights for them. And if the Lord is fighting for them, what does that mean? It means they will be victorious. If God not only leads his people into battle, if he not only fights for them, it must mean that he will give them victory. Israel's success is assured. With God leading them into battle, they cannot possibly fail. The Lord of all the earth, who parted the Red Sea and stopped the waters of the Jordan, the God who provided manna daily for their food and gave them victory in their wilderness battles, the God who brought them thousands of miles over many years, will give them this land. God intends to make good on his promise. He will see it through. His victory is assured. But why does God fight for his people? Why will he give them victory? Because they are his people. They're his covenant people. He leads them into battle. He fights for his people. He gives his people victory because they are his people. God didn't call them to himself to forsake them. He didn't make promises to them that he couldn't or wouldn't fulfill. He will give them success. They will be victorious in battle. They will take possession of the land. They will experience the abundance of their promised inheritance. So this divine encounter reiterates God's omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. It reiterates his supreme authority to see the task through. So because of Israel's, or because of the Lord's assured success, Israel will live in the bounty provided by his victory. The very fact that they will live in the land he is giving to them, that they will live and receive the abundance of the land that God had promised them, will be the evidence that they are indeed God's people. Well, we too know that we are God's new covenant people because we live in God's victory. God demonstrated his sure victory supremely in the resurrection of Jesus. In his resurrection, death, which is the final enemy, is defeated once and for all. Christ has triumphed over all, and there is no power anywhere in the universe that can defeat him. Paul writes in Colossians 2.15, God, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. How? By triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Christ's resurrection is the thing that brings his victory. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, again, a longer passage I wish I could read, just verse 57. He sums up the great 
glory of the resurrection by saying, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So because Christ has been raised, his victory is assured. And because his victory is assured, we as his people live in the fullness of that victory. And so Paul exhorts us on the heels of this great proclamation of Christ's victory in the resurrection to live in this victory. In 1 Corinthians 15:58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Christ's victory is assured, and we live in the fullness of that victory. And it is in the living of that victory that we know that we are God's covenant people. My friends, we are God's people. We are God's people. We are God's people, His covenant people. And I pray that the knowledge of who we are in Christ will help us to live as God's covenant people should in the fullness of His grace, in the fullness of His life, in the fullness of His victory, striving to love Him, to honor Him, and to serve Him faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to be Your people. And we thank You, Lord, for marking us as Your people. We thank You for these truths that Reveal to us that we truly are your people, that you care for us. You care for us, Lord. You meet our needs. You watch over us. You see our lives, Lord, not, not just merely in a physical sense, Lord, but in a spiritual sense. You care for us. You've called us. You've redeemed us. We live in your victory. But I pray that these identity markers would help us to walk as your people should. I'm reminded, Lord, of the words of the church father Ignatius who said, I don't want merely to be called a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I want to live as a Christian. I pray, Lord, that our, our calling as a Christian would motivate us and help us, Lord, to live as Christians in this world and in doing so that you would be honored by our lives. You would glorify yourself and that you would accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.